Hello, you're listening to Skeleton Key, a podcast about getting people to open up and seeing what we find inside. I'm your host, Peter Sawyer, and thank you for checking this out. Uh, real quick, before each episode, I want to have a preamble. Um, I think that's going to be part of the, the format. This is still a work in progress. But um, last episode, I had David Duvall on, and I did some fact-checking, and he thought that Marilyn Manson did Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson did the Summer Breeze cover for I still know what you did last summer. Well, I found out that was typo negative. But what I didn't realize is that it was from I know what you did last summer. So rookie mistake well, there. I screwed that up. Uh, credit to Brian Kasich for bringing that to my attention. So there, there there's mistakes I still make. Please uh, let me know because I want to correct them. Um, so yeah, that is from the original, I know we did last summer soundtrack. Um, anyway, this past weekend I had a job delivering some Hello Kitty gear to the Cherry Blossom Festival in San Francisco. Uh, it was a cool trip. I got to see some friends and kind of mix everything up a little bit. Uh, and since I'm in LA, the drive up to San Francisco takes a while, especially if you're going back and forth like I was. Um, so I, I listened to some podcasts to kill the time and I wanted to make some recommendations. Um, my friend, Matt Johnson told me to check out the rich roll episode where Kevin Smith is a guest and he discusses his Widowmaker heart attack. Uh, he goes on to talk about adopting a plant-based diet. Part of me thinks this is Matt's subtle way of trying to get me to go vegan <laughs> And you know that might be a possibility. Um, I'm not there yet, and I think if I committed to a vegan diet, uh, the punk in me might say fuck that and and always break it. Uh, I I just I'm sort of a rule breaker with certain things, and I, I hate restrictions and strict standards. But uh, the ethical side of veganism appeals to me, and and it's you know a step in the right direction. Let's let's be honest. Even if you eat meat or dairy, like the, the way the world is. Um, so that's something to strive for. Um, but beyond just the, you know, how Kevin Smith came to terms with his health, um, it was an interesting podcast. He, he talks a lot about his experience with clerks and if you're a creative, there's some inspiring takeaways. So thanks Matt for pointing me there. Also, I listened to Turn Out a Punk. Um, that's a podcast that's a go-to of mine and it's a lot of fun. Damien from the band Fucked Up is the host and the dude knows his shit. He uh, can talk on the subject for days. He has a lot of entertaining guests, interesting people on there. Um, so I, I recommend that if you grew up in the punk scene or want stories from that subculture. Lastly, there was another podcast I'd never heard um, called Risk. It's been around for a while, but it's new to me. Basically, it's all sorts of stories uh, where people tell these stories they never think they're going to tell. Uh, one minute, it's a transsexual escort taking some dude up the ass, and the guy shits the bed. Uh, and the next minute, you're listening to someone like Trevor Noah talk about his brutal home life in South Africa. It's super fascinating. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll be on the edge of your seat. Uh, a lot of wild card stories on there. So again, recommend that as well. Um, as for today's episode, I brought in Pat Jenkowitz. He's a journalist who's written for Fangoria and many, many other publications throughout the years. He's also an actor and screenwriter, and he's really just a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, Pat has a wealth of knowledge and crazy anecdotes, 
and he loves talking inside baseball when it comes to film genres and the pop culture it created. He brings such a charisma and energy to the room that it's just a blast being around him. Um, I always get a big smile on my face when Pat's there, so I was very stoked to have him on. Um, and when Pat came over, he brought his brother Don. And you'll hear Don speak up from time to time, but he's not near the mic. So it might be a little hard to make out what he says. Pat does a pretty good job of echoing Don each time he does chime in, so you're not going to be lost. Um, we have a couple other guests, too. Um, they're animals. Uh, our pet Cleo and our dog Chip Chip are there. And occasionally you'll hear Cleo knock around a plastic cat toy. Uh, so that's that strange sound. And I think Chip Chip was actually quiet, but Pat starts talking about her. So that's who he's referring to. Very sweet chihuahua. And I didn't catch any mistakes this episode, but my track record's not quite pristine. So maybe maybe there's something I, um, I Pat or I got wrong. And, you know, you can bring that to my attention if you want. Um, but I did want to address someone Pat brings up because when he was talking, I didn't have the needed context to really appreciate what he was saying. Uh, Pat mentions a guy named Gary Kurtz. Gary Kurtz was the producer on Empire Strikes Back, but he also produced Dark Crystal and Turn to Oz. <laughs> Um, so let that sink in for a second because that guy was going to be involved in the making of Apocalypse Now. Him and George Lucas. Uh, that's damn near impossible to imagine that shit, but it's kind of fun to think about. Lastly, before jumping into this, I just want to bring up something. Um, I think it'll still be around here by the time this airs, but, uh, if you live in Los Angeles and have never been to Good Luck Bar, uh, do so now because it's getting evicted, and that sucks. Uh, if you don't live in Los Angeles or have never been there, let me do my best to try and break it down. Uh, it's it's on a corner, and when you go in, you're expecting kind of a dive bar. But to me, when I walked in, I was like, this shit looks like some Chinese whorehouse time forgot. Um, it's, it's bathed in red. It has all these like interesting details, uh, and it's just – there's something magical about the place. It's also got a hell of a jukebox. Uh, the first time I heard Iggy Pop's Cry for Love was in there, and I was like, what is this? And that's a tremendous tune. But um, because it's it's going to be no more, it's, they're getting evicted, uh, I want to share a quick story about the place because I think it's a fun story, and it's one of those only in Los Angeles moments. So I had been to Good Luck Bar a couple times. So this... This time wasn't my first time going there, but it's where we ended up. Basically, I had a couple friends that were all move in together. Um, they are getting settled. We were going to have a couple beers at their place then then go out and have some fun. But they, they'd set up their TV and they had Hulu and sort of like, fuck it, let's just see what's on. And Bill and Ted's bogus journey catches our eye. I think we all were like, yeah, this is this is what we need to do. We need to watch some of this. Um, there's, I mean, yeah, there's no way you're not going to watch that if that's at your fingertips. I'm sorry. Uh, and we, so we turn it on and I think we all were kind of thinking we'll just watch it for a couple minutes before we go. However, that movie holds up. I mean, it's, it's a blast. It's, it's well worth a revisit if you've not seen it in years. Um, there's some stuff that, <laughs> that Ted says that would not fly today. So it's kind of a time capsule, um, in and of itself. Anyway, we, we end up watching it and we're all like, wow, that was, that was fun. And then we head out in the night, you know, looking for trouble or 
just, you know, seeing where the night takes us. And it took us to the good luck bar. We uh, were walking around. We see it. And I don't know if I was the one that was like, yo, guys, let's let's go here because this place is cool. Or we all were like, yeah, what's this? Or, you know, it's just one of those things. So we go in. Uh, we have a couple of drinks. And um, I got to go to the bathroom. But as I'm about to get up to go, my friend Matt had been staring at these two girls. Uh, and he was, he was getting a some amusement out of the situation because they had to fend off these guys that the girls were clearly not into. Um, it wasn't like overly aggressive or anything. I, th- I think it was just kind of like he was people watching and then it's like, Oh, this might be interesting. So I'm like, all right, man, you do you, I gotta go piss. So I go to the bathroom, do my business. And as I come out, one of those girls grabs me. She's like, look, I'll pay you, but can you make these guys go away? And so I tell her, I'm like, I'm happy to help you. I'm not going to take your money for that. Um, but give me a second to think how to approach the situation. So I get an idea. I, I say, where's your friend from? And she says somewhere like uh, Tennessee. I am not positive that's a state, but it's kind of in that pocket of the United States. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I walk back over to the bar where my friends happen to be and this girl and the, these these creepy older dudes and I just kind of say something over my shoulder. I'm like, man, it sounds like you're from Chattanooga or something. And so her eyes light up. She turns towards me, uh, totally engages with me. I think she she knew that uh, her friend sent for help. And the guys kind of look at each other, look at me. Um, and I think they're like, fuck, all right, fine. So they, they back off. So once the guys leave, the girl like as a sigh of relief. And she's like, you know, thank you so much. These guys uh, came over to us. They bought us drinks take a guess what they bought them uh i'll tell you uh, sex on the beach and uh tried to get the girls to go home with them um and the girls had to make up an excuse then the guys were like well we can go to your plate you know doing all that shit i'm not a girl but that is not a fun fucking situation to be in uh and to make matters kind of worse the guys had told them they had kind of seen them at this bar before which adds a whole new level of stalker creepiness to it but uh, the girls were safe, uh, and they were happy to talk to us, and you know, all that. So it was it was kind of a fun little moment. Uh, and by the way, I'm married, so I had no real interest in these girls. But I had four or five single friends, and I'm like, look, guys, you have these these girls that are willing to talk to us. You need to make connections, start talking them, whatever. Uh, I don't think anything came of it though. But it was just kind of like interesting. Uh, so. At the end of the night, you know, we're, we're leaving the bar or whatever, and these one of them turns to me, the one that approached me, and she's like, that was the highlight of your night, right? And so I sit and I'm thinking, I'm like, well, yeah, I did a good deed. That was that was kind of cool. Um, but she said that shit, you know? I don't want to give her the satisfaction. <laughs> so I, I, I'm like, no, that was not the highlight of my night. The highlight of my night was watching Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And when I say that to her, she gets this huge smile on her face and starts laughing. And so now I'm like, well, what the fuck? So I ask her, I'm like, what's so funny? She's like, oh, nothing. My dad just produced that movie. <laughs> um, and it was just, wow. It was one of those, like I say, only in LA moments um, that I, I cherished. I just thought it was a, a fun story and part of the magic of the good luck bar, I guess. I don't know. But Again, it, it sucks that we're losing that place, um, and I hope to go there tonight. So, on with the show. Um, again, I'm your host. I'm Peter Sawyer. You can follow me on Instagram at Dude with a Problem. 
And if you write screenplays, you may catch the reference. Uh, Skeleton Key is produced by Brandon Bonner. And if you want to follow on him on Instagram, his handle is Brandon Bonner at, Brand, or at Brandon Bonner. Uh, Bonner spelled B-O-N-N-E-R. At this moment, I'm still working on who my next guest will be. So we're just going to have to chalk that up as a surprise for the time being. And all right, the one, the only, Pat Jenkowitz. Let's get to it and turn the key. So I'm here with Pat and Don Jenkowitz. And Pat, before diving into this, I want to say I was up in San Francisco this past week. And I was trying to stay away from social media because Game of Thrones new season premiere and people love to spoil that shit. Um, But I did happened to look on Facebook and I saw you looking like a blue devil or orc or demon, which tells me you were at Monster Palooza. I was. That was for the great Rob Berman and Sheila, who had me do, uh, uh, I've done creatures for them. And so when they had me, uh, um, they asked me to do this. I think they were calling me a warrior yeti, you know? And so uh, um, it was this cool three-hour makeup. It was a, it was a more advanced version of one that Rob had already broken in on me. But the latex was really comfortable. I've done a lot of creatures, so the latex was really comfortable. And anything the Burmans asked me to do, I'll do. I like the Burmans a lot. Were you just kind of like walking around Monster Palooza, or what was the... They took me around. Uh, Sheila, who helped him... Uh, um, Sheila works for KNB, and she's one of his his he's one of the proteges he's most proud of. So she did all the teeth for the Klingons and the new Star Trek and everything. So they asked me to do that, and and Elliot Brodsky's Monster Palooza is my favorite favorite favorite. It beats Comic Con. I think it's it doesn't feel like a convention. It, it's Elliot and his family put this thing on where like minded individuals all get together and. Just the coolest people on earth, Mike, Mickey Hill, you know, Darren Roberts, just amazing makeup people, amazing writers, amazing creators. It just, it's a really, it's exciting Pat McGee of McGee Effects, Me Effects. They're just great people. They're really talented. They're really interesting. And and I think uh, you and I, of course, are on uh, uh, Stephen King's Children of the Porn trivia team together. Yes, so are. Yeah, you're the MVP. So wow. to me, it's more or less kind of exciting to meet like-minded individuals, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've had a blast at them. Um, what were some highlights this year? Honestly, this year was kind of amazing. I ran into a, a, a director friend who did a, this astoundingly great movie that I covered from Fangoria.com and it, won, it wound up uh, uh, winning the LA Scream Fest called Tres Dias. This great, yeah, this great Spanish language end of the world movie. You know, uh, it's got like four different titles, but you can find the IFC as either that or Day of the Rock because it's Earth is going to be destroyed. But it's a personal family story in the middle of this terrifying event. I think I've actually seen that. You, if you was, saw it, you'll never forget it. It was was it on like it's probably on Shutter or it, it, I think it's on Shutter now. He the director is incredibly original and uh and he's right now he's been working on uh um he's been he did the they had him do one of the the, the, the latest rings movie the rings oh the newest latest latest one yeah, and right. he was gonna do he was gonna do he was gonna do uh um the crow he was gonna do a crow remake 
And I just, I wanted to see, I wanted, I was so excited to run into him and I wanted to see him do, they keep giving him, they, they bring him in because he's ferociously original and then they had him remakes and, uh, and sequels. And it was so good to see him because his stuff is really disturbing, you know, and um, I was just, I was so happy to see him there. Jaime, yeah. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, I was just so excited to see him there. It's, it's amazing director, you know. Right on. What, uh, did you go to the after parties? I did. I, in fact, one of the reasons I, uh, I was too tired to go on Sunday is, I went out with friends, and we were done at like four in the morning. Oh <laughs> you know? Jesus! And then my nephews dropped in, and, and wanting to hang out, so I was unable to. Uh, I was unable to just to rally forth, you know. Right, 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 right but on, man. That it's amazing, Pete. You know, you love Monster Palooza, right? Uh, yeah, I've I've been to Monster Palooza and Son of Monster Palooza. Um, they're both amazing. Yeah, they're they're fun times. They're they're huge horror conventions for those of you guys who don't know. Um, I think David and I talked about it last time, but uh, yeah, I saw Pat was looking cool in his, his makeup, so I wanted to ask about that. But Pat, you have a very interesting story, a lot to to share, and so I want to get into that. So you and your family are from originally from Detroit, right? Detroit, Michigan, sir. Right on. How? What was that like, and how did you guys all end up out here? My father was a uh, my father was an uh, auto engineer. He designed stuff for Chrysler and parts of the car doors that are still used in Chrysler cars today. Wow, and as kids in the eighties, you know, uh, the auto industry was basically falling apart. So my father, my father went into aerospace, you know, and, and started working for General Dynamics. And so, just as the automotive industry was collapsing. We moved to California, and the the change, I, anyone from the Midwest to to, it's jarring, it's exciting, it's amazing to go from the Midwest line of thinking to the Southern California way of thinking. It's literally like going from Krypton to planet Earth. I mean, you suddenly you have opportunities that would not have presented themselves in Michigan. You know. Yeah, I, I totally understand the, the fascination. How old were you when you got out here? 13 going on 14, you know, and, and uh, um, when we came out here, the lifestyle was totally different. And my brother Don and I were in high school, and it was different when you liked movies, but it was 3,000 miles away. The only way to find out, the only way to find out what was happening in California we would buy those smeary, big, thick at the local newsstand, the bookstore, a newsboy, a, a little professor, you know, bookstores back in the 80s were huge. We would buy these smeary $1 variety AFM issues, which would be filled with all these lurid movies you never hear about, you know, but they would be full page ads to get you. That's how we saw Hollywood. When we were actually in Hollywood, suddenly it was no longer 3,000 miles away. Now it's 30 miles away. Right, right. And even though we were kids and couldn't drive, my brother Donald came up with this great idea on how to get on movie sets. You know, we were in high school, and Donald came up with this idea that California had... <laughs> Again, I don't know how a 14-year-old boy came up with this, but it was really genius. He goes, uh, they've all got to get permits. That's what, that was his theory. So he would call the state of California to see where film permits were issued for what movies. 
Oh, wow. That's, that is genius. I never would have thought of that. And so he, he ran, uh, uh, he ran this game plan where we would find movies. We'd want to crash. Well, if it's a zombie movie, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a vampire movie. Yeah, maybe, you know, we don't like vampires as much. So we would find these horror movies shooting in the shooting in the weirdest places. Um, the old abandoned Uniroyal Terror Factory, which is now the Citadel Mall. Okay. That was the in commerce that in California. There was some terrible cannon movie shooting there, and we that was the it was an Albert Pune movie. It was the first set we ever crashed in high school, and I remember my father telling me, "Your mother and I don't wake up before 10 a.m. on on uh, Saturday, so if you get arrested." You and your brother can't call us to bail you out until 11 a.m. after I've had my coffee. And then, of course, I had to find a friend who could drive because at that point I was like 15 and you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to get to the set, you need somebody with a driver's license. Right. Usually it worked better if your friend's parents were divorced because they weren't as freaked out if the kid was gone all night. That sounds terrible, but it's true. And you would get on this set. And I mean, I remember... Everyone wanted to be a filmmaker, and you're watching the. It was an Albert Pune movie, and I guess Menachem Golan had hired these. There was these two giant goons. It was a negative pickup. It was a negative, a wink, wink, a negative pickup, which meant it was a. a I don't know if it was not independent at that point. So what it was is it was some end of the world movie, Blade Runner ripoff, and it was just fantastic shooting indoors in this tire factory, and I remember around two or three o'clock in the morning. Albert Pune was falling asleep in the chair and one of the big guys walks over and kind of slaps him on the cheeks and goes, wake up, make movie. <laughs> wow. Well, um, one of, I know one of the movies you crashed is a personal favorite of mine, which is Return of the Living Dead. Can you tell us about that? It was an amazing set, actually. I, I mean, uh, uh, seeing Lynette Quigley naked under a rain machine at the height of her powers, breathtaking. You know, and uh, again, the cast and crew are friends to this day. I mean, William Stout was the production designer. He also designed uh, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, he did, he did uh, storyboarded First Blood. He, he was one of the inspirations for Michael Crane to write Jurassic Park. So uh, to walk around the set and talk to these amazing people, to talk to Dan O'Bannon, Beverly, Ra Beverly Randolph, who married uh, Bill Stout's assistant, Clay Hartley, uh, Brian Peck, they're great, great people. They're really sweet people. Uh, um, Bill Munns. Bill, there's an amazing shot of me as a teenage boy with Bill Munns, who, who uh, built the Tar Man and a lot of the creatures in the movie. And then, and, and then I did a Bigfoot movie recently where Bill Munns, who also did Swamp Thing, Beastmaster, all this great classic 80s cheese. Bill did the uh, Bigfoot for this movie where I was playing the Bigfoot with Adrian Barbeau and Ben Browder and, uh, and Brian Thompson. And so Bill and I were sharing a cabin and I was making him every day. He and I would have breakfast and I would make him tell me these great stories about working with Don Coscarelli or Wes Craven. Right. Yeah. I, I don't blame you. You That's, know, well, uh, when you guys were on set as teenagers, where that was the, like the team, like who the hell are these kids? It was, that's the, one of the great things is that I would tell – I could do this old man voice. I would deal with the publicist on the phone. We're going to be sending over one of our youngest writers. And I, I think I even crashed a few as Fangoria because I got a letter from uh, Bob Martin, Uncle Bob Martin, when I was like 15 and I was pitching and work. And he, he 
wrote me this letter. And I remember I, I, my brother Tom and I shared a room with kids, and he walked in, and I had this letter clutched to my chest like a suicide note. Oh, like Bob, Bob, yeah, Bob exactly. Bob Martin sent me this letter that said, uh, "Our yeah. magazine is written for teenage boys, not by them. You will never write for Frank Gore." He hadn't seen almost famous, and he hadn't seen almost famous. But yeah. I, uh, <laughs> So I felt, I was laying on the floor shell-shocked with this letter on my chest. My big brother Tom came in the room, said, uh, what are you all bummed out about? Picked up the letter, read the letter, laughed once, balled it up, and threw it in the trash. <laughs> and that's how you deal with it. I mean, uh, um, after that, it was totally jank. Because you'd go, I mean, so I would call them in an older man voice saying, it's one of our youngest writers. He's 25, but he looks about 15. Don't make a big deal about it. You know, and then, uh, um, but the publicist would, he knew, they had to know they were snookered when we showed up. You know, I mean. Well, they build a production based on the media they bring in anyway. So, so uh, I crashed some as Fangoria, and I guess Fangoria had a hard time getting on a couple sets because I'd already visited them. And uh, the great thing is, you would sit down with a Dan O'Bannon, and Dan O'Bannon would be telling you anything you wanted to know about Dan O'Bannon and his work. He would tell you about creating Blue Thunder, he would tell you about how he came up with Alien. You would walk around, I remember watching Bill Stout with these little, uh, um, Bill Stout was putting these little pushpin mushrooms, because they were shooting Return of the Living Dead in the field in Silmar. And he had fake mushrooms, fake mossy mushrooms. Bill Stout designed every... Every, there were no real cemeteries in Return of the Living Dead. That's that's a fake cemetery designed by Bill Stout. Wow. And it's set in Kentucky, but it was all shot in Silmar. Yeah, yeah. And downtown LA. And downtown LA, of course, with the you know the Unita and all that. You, you can't can, tell you know, Peck's I, Warehouse and all that. Dan, a friend of ours, took me to that location. Like, that was a shooting site for Return of the Living Dead. Dan from uh, our team? Sikwinski, yeah. I couldn't find it for the life of me. Even Bill Stout wasn't sure where it was. You Dan, know? Dan knows. He can take you. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> well, he's he's uh, close with Brian Peck, so that's why I think he knew. Brian gave me a tour of the set as a kid, and, and he was very nice. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, um, I remember him telling me I remember him telling me he had a uh, poster of Alien above his bed at USC, where I think he, he got... He got, uh, uh, when, when Dan let Bill go, Tony Garner stepped in and finished the movie, you know, even though he's this college kid. Right. Bill, Dan O'Bannon was going back and forth whether there would be gore or no gore in the movie. And I remember, the, you know, the, there was a, a dead little girl with a human head had a bigger part in the movie one of the nights that was there than she does in the final film. That little guy with the arm, I was there when they shot the scene with the little guy, Kim's running, and, and when they were eating the paramedics and all that. I, the, the little guy with the arm who comes running up, he used to dance on Hollywood Boulevard, the little, the, the little person zombie. Oh, okay. He used to dance for change on Hollywood Boulevard in like a, a genie outfit. You know, because, I mean, in the 80s, showing up, it was such a culture clash to see Hollywood Boulevard at the height of its powers. In the, in the 80s, nothing ever closed. Everything was open all night. You would have the bikers in one area of Hollywood. You would have Harry Krishna. You would have the breakdancers in front of the uh, Max Factor building. And Hollywood Boulevard never closed. It was open all night, amazing. You'd, you'd watch them shooting some low-budget movie in the alley behind, uh, behind the uh, Hollywood Pacific. I mean, Pete, you have no idea what an amazing wonderland this place was coming from the Midwest at that point, you know? I, I can only imagine because I was always fascinated with 
with Los Angeles. Um, but you, what's interesting about this, uh, your, so your relationship with Fangori was off to a rocky start. <laughs> Not existent at that point. I was working at Wendy's when Dave Everett called. Dave Everett called and he said... Uh, he called the house. He called the house and Donald thought they were going to buy my work. And, and uh, so he gave them the number of the Wendy's I was working at high school. And so I'm manning a grill at Wendy's, like 15 years old, and somebody goes, uh, Jango, it's phone for you. And it was Dave Everett. Listen, you little punk. And he, who, for, who is Dave Everett? Oh, Dave Everett was with Robert Martin, the co-editor of Fangoria. He's no longer with us. No longer with us. And uh, uh, based on my brief interaction. <laughs> so the funny thing is... Um, I just kept doing, I, I kept doing set visits, crashing sets, and uh, I started writing up it up for my school paper, and then I started writing for the college paper, and I did an interview with Jim Belushi. Oh, and, wow. You know, his college press meets Jim Belushi, and my brother Tom drove, and I remember walking out. Uh, um, it was some, it might have been the Four Seasons. We were halfway down the hall, and they, they dismissed all the college press. And this beautiful publicist, she ran after us in this silk dress, grabbed my arm, and she said, could you please come back? Mr. Belushi would like to talk to you. And so my brother Tom and I were ushered into this room, and Jim Belushi said, listen, I've been talking to you real press all day long. And he goes, the smartest questions came from you. You had the best questions. And I, I, I said, who are this, these college kids? And he had me brought back and he goes, if you're not doing this professionally, you better think about it. You know what I mean? And tuition went up and I was working at three jobs. I was working in a movie theater. I was working at Trader Joe's and I was working at the Holiday Inn from Poltergeist. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I mean, so I was working three jobs and it was really expensive. And then I thought, well, I'm going to take my best high school. In high school, it, again, it was a magical time. In Upland, where we moved to, Ray Bradbury would appear once a year at the local bookstore. And Ray Bradbury gave me an interview. And, uh, and um, I wrote the interview. I've never reprinted it because I think it's awful. <laughs> it's the worst. I asked the greatest, one of the greatest writers of all time some of the worst questions, stupidest and I couldn't stand to listen to my voice changing on the tape when I transcribed it. And my brother, my, one of my brothers called me Honky the Goose because my voice kept cracking when I was listening to the tape while through the interview. So I took a bunch, even that terrible article because the, the, the layout was good. So I sent my best, I, I, I found a book called The Writer's Market at the Library. And Writer's Market told you where in the, you know, and where everybody was paying in the 90s, you know, uh, where everyone was paying for articles and that sort of thing. And I started sending, I started sending them out and, you know, to different film magazines. And out of 30, I mailed like a, a week before Christmas, I had about 28 solid offers before New Year's. And... I, I, again, I picked and choose based on how they were paying, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, I only, because I, I got into it for mercenary reasons. I wanted to help pay for school. <laughs> and I started running for magazines that stuff I wouldn't have normally been into, like Star Trek. I found they were paying top dollar if you could find people from Star Trek. The original, the original Star Trek series was like the holy grail to these people. 
So they would buy anybody from the original Star Trek. So I got really good at finding people. Like I would, I could find actresses no matter how many divorces they had, change their name, whatever. I would always find them, and they were always amazed to be found. They would give you an interview because you track them down to each name they took. And then they'd be friendly with other actresses from the show. And that would, yeah, Don's right. And that would lead to the the. Uh, being, they would say, you really got to interview my friend Pam. You really ought to interview Trish. And so I became known as the guy who could find the Star Trek people nobody could find. And I would use that to other 60s shows like Batman or, or Lost in Space, whatever they were looking for at that time. You would find them and, you know, and doing current movies as well. I mean, it was weird to go to sets legitimately. <laughs> right, yeah. And what happened is one of the magazines I was running for was for the same publisher as Fangoria. And eventually Fangoria, uh, um, Tony Timponi started buying my stuff. He, he liked, I got some people they weren't able to find, you know, in, in different horror movies. And one of my niches became, I loved, when I was a kid reading Fangoria, I, I had the three rule, the rule of three. Where Fangoria used to be incredibly expensive. It was like five or seven dollars. <laughs> so as a kid, you know what I mean? I mean, that was if you're working at Wendy's or something, that was way too much money. So you had to wait until Fangoria had three articles you wanted to read. That would justify the the rule of the three was you could read one article in the in the BD Dalton's. You could maybe read two articles, but if there are three articles that was too many articles. Somebody would tell you it wasn't no library and throw you out. Oh, okay, I see. So the rule of the three, and I, when I did my writing, I always felt I have to write it compelling enough. I have to give you reasons. Every one of my articles is structured. You have to know why to care about this guy. You know what I mean? I mean, if it's a, if it's a classic writer, you have to mention the tropes he came up with, the, the, uh, the stories he came up with. If it's a modern writer, you are a director. You have to show why you should care about this person. I see that. Yeah, that's smart. So Jim Bellucci kind of steered your trajectory towards journalism. He did. He kind of changed my life. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, as corny as that sounds, you know. No, that's that's awesome. That's that's a great pep talk to have. Well, that uh, might have been a brother thing too. On top of it. I think because it was me and Tom. I, I think seeing a guy with his older brother kind of uh, touched a nerve with him too. Yeah, that's Don's right. I, I, you know what I mean? Because he saw I brought my big brother with me, and Tom was really shy. You know, and I know it's hard to believe in a family that has me, but he was more like Donald. He was more taciturn and right. quiet. And so he saw Belushi reacting to me. Right. And and. Uh, and so he was, uh, uh, he was, I think the brother thing hit a nerve with him too. And he wanted to talk to us privately, but it was, it was really cool of him. He was very nice. Was that, and that was how long after John Belushi passed? It was, a, uh, it was over, it was over, uh, no, like eight years, you know what I mean? But I think at the time it meant, it made an impression on him. Right, you know I mean? right, right, right. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating that, well, that he's like, you're the best. You ask the best questions, and then you go to Bray Bradbury, and you think you ask the worst. Oh my God! It was a, it was literally the worst interview I'm sure Ray Bradbury ever gave. But he, Ray Bradbury, sent me this poster for one of his films or books, and and he wrote on it like I was uh, uh, like I was, you know what I mean? I, uh, like it was God's gift of journalism. He wrote, "Oh, dearest Patrick, thank you for your amazing interview." 
And I couldn't look at that poster except in shame because I knew how sucky the interview was. Well, you know, you, you were young and that was early on, you know. My voice is changing during the interview. <laughs> it's, it's awfully hard. You know, he's talking about... He never got drunk or I do remember he told me he got heavily drunk when he saw the Martian Chronicles with Rock Hudson. He hated the Beast from 20,000 Phantoms. He said it's based on one of his books, his short story, The Foghorn, actually, which is a beautiful story. They were stealing it. Ray Harry, they were stealing it. And Ray Harry Housen, this is a story he told me. He grew up with it. Ray Harry Housen was a childhood friend of Ray Bradbury's, and they brought him in to animate the dinosaur. And he immediately recognized this Saturday evening post story that Ray had sold called The Foghorn. Where the, it's, it's about this dinosaur is way out in the harbor and it thinks the foghorn is another of its species. And it turns out he's the last of his kind. And when he, he it's a beautiful story, a great short story. I, I actually taught it in high school English when I was uh, teaching English. The dinosaur actually comes to the, the foghorn in the night to the lighthouse and knocks it over. And that's the end of the story. And then really he's bereft because now he's again the last of his species. Well, Ray Harryhausen was uh, animating it, and he realized they ripped off Ray Bradbury's story. So he called Ray, told him what they were doing. Ray called his agent. They had to retroactively buy the story because he goes, they threw my story away after the first 10 minutes, two minutes when he knocks over the lighthouse. <laughs> and then it became, a, uh, it became a Creature on the Loose movie, which, of course, later inspired Godzilla. Really? Oh my God! Wow. You gotta look, look at Beast and look at Godzilla, and the posters are identical. You know, uh, they they have the same catchphrases on there. The original Godzilla was like uh, a year or two out of out of uh, out, out of a year or two after Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. They did the exact same poster. They did the exact same everything. You know, same beat structure. Same beat structure. And if you look at the um, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. It's actually a remake of, of Beast from 20,000 Phantoms, right down for the, the Beast arrives at the Fulton Fish Market, just like in Godzilla. Huh. He even enters New York from the harbor in the same place. Right, right. Huh. That's definitely something to explore. And by the way, the same high school class, L.A. City High, as Ray Perry House and Ray Bradbury with Charles Bukowski. Yeah, Charles Bukowski graduated with the two of them. I don't think they hung out much, though. Ray Bradbury didn't drink <laughs> much. Until yeah, until later. <laughs> So, Pat, back to your journalism and, you know, interviewing all these fascinating people. What, which interviews are you most proud of and who are some of the more, like, wild cards that you never thought you'd be sitting face-to-face with? I mean, imagine Bray Bradbury was one of them. Ray, well, you know, I was too young and dumb. I was in high school, so I didn't realize that not everyone would get to talk to Ray Bradbury. There's, there's, the, the weird thing is I've interviewed James Cameron. I've interviewed Francis Ford Coppola. I've interviewed Natalie Portman. I've interviewed uh, um, just these, uh, um, like, I'll give you an example of one person who just hit the new, who just, who just came out. It's in the new Infinity magazine. I found Ralph McQuarrie about 10 years ago, the production designer in Star Wars. He designed all the characters. He was the, he was the art designer. When they were trying to sell Star Wars, they, they needed artwork. And he, he was an old aerospace designer. So he did all this concept art for Star Wars for them. You know what I mean? I mean, he did, uh, uh, he designed R2-D2, C-3PO, the Stormtroopers, Darth Vader. And I thought, he, the poor guy was riddled with Parkinson's and nobody talked to him. You know what I mean? And 
I nobody had talked to him in a while, and I found him kind of lonely and very receptive to talking about his work. I mean, the guy, even if you don't know those, everyone knows the Star Wars characters, even if you don't know him, he designed the mothership for Coast Encounters of the Third Kind. He designed E.T.'s spaceship for E.T. the Extraterrestrial. He, one of his famous images that you don't even know is him, he designed the Bible page of the Ark of Covenant you see in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, Remember wow. the beams emanating right, and everyone right. bowing before? That's all Ralph McCord. You know, he designed the spaceships on, on Buck Rogers in the 25th Century TV show. He did those for Galactica, and Galactica didn't use them, and they just grabbed the design and reused it for Buck Rogers. So when you talk to somebody like that, you're talking to, at that time, he's gone now, but it was living history, where he's, he's telling you his first-person account, George Lucas asking him, uh, uh, give me one of the robots from Silent Running, was his, design, was his, his mandate on creating R2-D2. And he said he didn't like, because they were so squared off, he didn't like the, the sound running robots. So he did the, um, he, didn't, he didn't like the sound running robots. And he suggested to George Lucas, and this is back in 1975, 76, when they're designing Star Wars, he suggested a ball. He said, why don't you make him a ball with a smaller head magnetized onto it, and he would roll in any direction, and the head would the head would stay on magnetically wherever he rolled. So even though it came out almost ten years after his death, Ralph McQuarrie designed Ralph McQuarrie designed BBA from J.J. Abrams Star Wars. Yeah, wow, that's he literally reused the same design, and I that took my breath. That was his original R two D two design, and I mean, so somebody like that telling you that and. I didn't hear the, I hadn't listened to the interview in a while, and I sold it because the magazine had been written for went out of business. So it sat on my hard drive for 10 years, and then when I sold it and reread it, I added the postscript about him inventing BBA because it's right there in print. You know, um, I did a, another massive interview I did just to get him. I wound up with an interview with Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and The Dark Crystal. And... Usually you can tell people who worked with George Lucas because they'll either call him him, you know, or, or Lucas, Bubba, or, you know what I mean? Never. The people who tell you, oh, I know George, are always full of crap because, you know, they, they don't, they, 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 it doesn't have the same affectation when you talk to people who worked with him. And with Gary Kurtz, when he said George, it was said with the authority of someone who knew him like an old college roommate. And he would tell you what he and George agreed on, what they didn't agree on, all their fights on The Empire Strikes Back. And so when, when Gary Kurtz died, I, I mentioned casually, I did this amazing three-hour interview with him at the Roma Cafe. And guys like Thunder Levin, who wrote Sharknado, started posting, run the interview. I want to read the interview. Where can I find it? And so I transcribed this interview, and I sent it into Star Wars the magazine, Titan Publishing, and uh, they're turning into a three-parter. They were blown away by it. There's one strictly on all the stress of directing the, uh, of producing The Empire Strikes Back, you know, directing Second Unit, trying to get the Wampa to look not crappy. All the and, and he knew where all the bodies were buried, and he wasn't afraid to share it. I mean, he he when he talked about Lucas, his differences with George Lucas were such that. They were supposed to kill. He revealed to me they were supposed to kill Han Solo in the in the Return of the Jedi, 
And that's what Harrison Ford wanted. And he goes, Harrison Ford, the toy company, told George Lucas, a live hand solo action figure is worth more to us than a dead one. So he, he blithely changed it so Han Solo would live. And again, that's, Kurtz was out. They were already having problems after Empire cost so much. But Gary Kurtz goes, that's, he goes, look at the, the Return of the Jedi. There's no reason at all for Harrison Ford to be in that movie. He said, you take out Harrison Ford's character and all the beats are exactly the same. Interesting. Is that common knowledge or is that just something that was from your conversation with him that... Kurtz kind of threw it out there, and over the years, I think it started to come out a little bit, but Kurtz said it was such disappointment that he would change the whole vision they were having. He goes, they wanted the, the trilogy to be like nine movies originally. You know, there, He said pitching Star Wars was the hardest because they kept telling people in 1976 when they're pitching Fox, it's because Fox is giving them a meeting, even though they said they thought the script was gibberish. If it wasn't for McCory's art, he said they wouldn't have sold the movie. And he said they're pitching it as Forbidden Planet meets the Flash Gordon serials. And he was saying when they were pitching the movie, everything was all the future movies were post-apocalyptic and depressing. Rollerball, Logan's Run, and all and THX, of course. By the way, Gary Kurtz said when they were working on American Graffiti, or when he first met George Lucas, here, here's something that's not common knowledge. Francis Ford Coppola brought Gary Kurtz and George Lucas together to do Apocalypse Now. And he said he brought in Gary Kurtz because he knew Gary Kurtz had served in Vietnam. Gary Kurtz was a Marine combat photographer, you know, uh, um, so he would photograph combat and all this. And at, George, and at Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola's company, up in the Bay Area, no, everyone wanted to do a Vietnam project, but nobody had any Vietnam experience. So the only guy he could find that he knew in his orbit was Gary Kurtz, who had gone to Vietnam. So he brought Gary Kurtz up to produce Apocalypse Now for George Lucas to write and direct. Wow. And Kurtz goes, what people don't know is the original script, John Milius' original script for Apocalypse Now, was much closer to a dark comedy like Altman's MASH. You know, and then when Co and Coppola made it much more explicitly the heart of darkness. And he, he said Coppola got sick of waiting for them to do, to you get rid of, you know, because they were brought in and then they wound up doing American Graffiti waiting for, uh, waiting for Apocalypse Now to get the green light. And one of the studios told them, listen, it's a, a great funny script but we don't think it's right to do a movie on this while people are still dying over them. Ah, uh, yeah. And then by the late 70s, Gary Kurtz said, uh, Francis Ford Coppola listened, screw it, said to them playfully, screw you guys, I'm tired of waiting to see this movie. I'm going to have to make it myself. And he said by that point they were too busy to get around to Apocalypse Now. But, you know, can you imagine what a Gary Kurtz, George Lucas, Apocalypse Now would have looked like, would have felt like? I no, I can't. I mean, yeah, that'd be that'd be a different movie. And he just literally that's when when you talk to somebody, the big difference, even as a kid, when you talk to someone who's been interviewed a million times, ask them stuff people don't ask about. You know right. James Cameron, you know what I mean? I mean when you when you got Cameron talking, Cameron and you, you kept Cameron off on his toes by asking him questions. I went deep into the New World days, you know. I did the same with Bill Paxton. 
And Bill Paxton was really excited when, when you asked him about the, the New World stuff. He would reveal how the whole swing crew was named after, uh, you know, Drew Miller Drake and all these guys. Apone, Ellen Apone. Cameron named his whole swing crew. He, he, he used all the names of the space marines and aliens. Yeah, right. And, and he said, it was, and Cameron said, well, they were the guys I could always depend on. So he liked them and thought if I were in a, you know, if we were a space marine, he'd want them in his unit. Which is kind of exciting because all the names showing up there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's wild. Yeah, you have a vast, I'm sure, library of interesting articles. Are those online or they're... You know what? I've been trying. Some of them are on audio. And they're, they're all on audio tape. So I've been looking for a tape preservation thing because a lot of, a lot of the people I've talked to are no longer around. You know, some of the classic guys. And I'm trying to... Uh, um, I'm trying to find a way to uh, uh, digitize them without destroying the original tapes, you know? I mean, Stan Lee, for example, you know? I mean, doing inter uh, um, I did a college interview with Stan Lee that went on for a while, you know, and years later I got a call from a Canadian college professor, uh, um, and it turned out he, did a, he was doing a book on Stan Lee's most important interviews, and Stanley cited this college interview with me as one of the most important interviews he ever did. He picked out 10 interviews out of like 60 years of his life. Holy shit. And yeah, and it, it, it's Stanley conversations, you know. Uh, um, so they went out to his garage. He went out to his garage, opened his garage for the professor, and the, and the garage was wall to wall, all these archives that Stanley had saved, and Stanley handpicked 10 interviews, and mine was one of them. And, and, you know, there was, like, the Village Voice from the 60s, and then my, my little college interview, you know? Uh, he didn't know, like, when Pat pointed out from Film Common, James Cameron told him he wanted to draw Iron Man when he was a kid back in Canada. Yeah, James Cameron had told, as a young Canadian kid, his original goal in life was to be the guy who drew Iron Man. So you could see his robot in the obsession in Marvel Comics and all that. And Stanley pulls out his typewriter. Yeah, and he goes, he's writing down the name of this... Stanley had this antique typewriter in his office. James Cameron wanted to draw Iron Man. <laughs> and that's where that got going. You know, and, and that's eventually that led to Cameron doing, uh, almost doing Spider-Man for the company. Really? Wow. <laughs> and that actually launched Iron Man. Yeah, I did. A, the, the Don's right. I did, uh, um, I did a story. I found out that uh, Iron Man, Stuart Gordon, reanimator. Yeah. In the 80s, had almost got an Iron Man movie going. Nobody knew about this. I did an article uh, uh, on the Lost Iron Man project. Stuart Gordon, Danny Wilson, and Paul DeMeo, the Empire writers, they wrote uh, Empire Pictures writers. They created the Crime Funding Car Show, uh, Viper. They wrote The Rocketeer. Uh, Zone, Tro the, uh, Zone Troopers and Transers were their projects. Rocketeer. They also went to my college. I actually did a college interview with both of them. They did the original Flash TV show. Father Virgil Wilson. They went to CSUSB, my, my college. And it uh, turned out they were going to write an Iron Man movie that Stuart Gordon was going to direct. And Sylvester, and so they wanted to, they were, they were, it was Iron Man comes out of retirement as a middle-aged millionaire to save the world once more. And Danny Bilson said, so, yeah, we're just ripping off Dark Knight Returns, but it was really cool. So I did this interview. I did this interview uh, uh, and, and with Stuart Gordon and Neil Adams had designed the Iron Man armor for the project. It just sounded amazing. 
And this ran in the 90s, and and uh, James Cameron, or not James Cameron, uh, um, Sylvester Stallone was making a movie in the Swiss Alps, and he he read the article in comic scene. He grabbed a bunch of magazines to read on location. One of them was an old copy of the long dead, was a copy of comic scene, my magazine. He read this, decided he wanted to play Iron Man, and he he basically got the project back to life. He went to play Tony Stark. And they almost got it going in the 90s. And it turned out it was going to be, uh, um, it was going to be, he brought in Stuart Gordon. He brought in Roy Thomas, who was mentioned in my article. Roy Thomas told me this. Stuart Gordon told me this. And give a big hug. And yeah, Roy Thomas, one of my favorite comic book writers, gave me a big hug and said, it was your article. It got me a meeting with Stallone. You know, and of course, when you're, you're getting your stuff to option but not made, you're thinking, why couldn't that happen to me? <laughs> you know, but uh, um, it pulled them all. Stallone tried for like two years to get it made, and when it didn't get made, he made Judge Dredd instead. Oh, interesting. But that, that was the birth of Iron Man as a film. Yeah, that got Iron Man, Don's right, it got Iron Man back in the loop as a project they were trying to make again, you know? Um, on the subject of superheroes, um, and this goes beyond that, you wrote a book on the Incredible Hulk, Buck Rogers, and Jaws. What attracted you to each one of those characters? I think Jaws is the, the quintessential American movie. I really do. I, I think it's, uh, 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 it's half horror movie. It's half adventure film. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, but the horror... I, it's the highest grossing horror movie of all time. It, it, it supplanted The Exorcist. And I think it, I think it, it did the, at, that t at that point. And I think it might still be dollars per screen average. And when you look, so that one, I think it, it was a horror film. It's disturbing. And one of the things it was, it used to be, as far as back as the 90s, it was one of the 20 most often run movies on basic cable. You know, I, I did some research, and there was like 20 movies that were always on basic cable. And, you know, there was nothing on it at that point. And I remember thinking, there would never been a... Carl Gottlieb, the, the, the wonderful writer of the film Jaws, and the, the, the co-star of the first film, and co-writer of Jaws 2 and Jaws 3D, he... It was weird. He did the ultimate film book. He did the, the Jaws log, you know. So I didn't want to, you know, I, I, mine was called the Jaws Companion. It just means that it was safe a Jaws Companion, which its anniversary was yesterday, actually, of it oh, coming out. happy birthday. Thank you. And so what was weird is it was one of the, they were having all-day Jaws marathons, and yet every one of the Jaws sequels was treated like a death in the family. <laughs> there, every time there'd be a British phone book or something on Jaws, it would be Jaws, Jaws, Jaws. And they would pretend the others didn't happen. Well, to me, it's more fascinating to me to look at the entire... It's like every, uh, almost every sequel of The Exorcist, they never mentioned because most of them are terrible. You know, the, the one Blatty did is great, but you know, the rest are pretty bad. So it fascinated me, and I thought, wouldn't, I, wouldn't it be cool to do a book on the making, on, on the original Jaws? Not just the making, the coming out, the reaction... And Carl himself will tell you, he, he wrote the book when before Jaws was a classic. He had no idea that the head scene would have the reaction it did. He had no idea that the Indianapolis scene would have the reaction it did 
where people have been claiming and fighting for credit for years and years. And there was nothing on the Indianapolis speech in his book. He never mentions why the scene was there or anything. It's not in the original Jaws. And so I, I, started, I started outlining maybe doing one in college where you would look, you know, and there wasn't really any interest. And then there was a bad publisher. So I just threw it in a sock drawer. And, you know, the, there was a publisher who violated a couple of deals. He since went bankrupt, of course. And so I just put the book in my sock drawer and thought, yeah, I'm done with it. And then years later, my brother Donald tells me that uh, Martha's Vineyard. Oh, the BBB release. Martha's Vineyard was going to do the, the in, honor, in honor of the Jaws movies, DVD re released for the first time in DVD in like 2005. They were doing a giant thing on Martha's Vineyard. 30th anniversary. For, uh, yeah, the th uh, 40th anniversary. You know, the uh, uh, 40th anniversary is 2005. And so he turns around and my brother Don says, you got to do this, you got to do this. And I just said, I'm done with Jaws. And the names kept getting better and better and better and better. And by that time, I'd waited so long that it was too expensive to fly out there. And Donald goes, listen, I'm going to set us up a series of driveways across the country. You have to do this. So we wound up in 2005 going literally driving across America in like a ridiculous amount of time in like three days we drove completely across the country to get to Martha's Vineyard in time for Jaws Fest the last 400 miles we were driving into New Jersey in a satellite truck this giant satellite truck it's from the Chicago Horizon yeah so we drove the satellite truck with a dish on the roof across all the way, all the way out to, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, um, it was great because my editor at Starlog took me to lunch. I got to see Tony in the Fangoria offices. I'd always, as a kid, as you know, as like a 10-year-old, you're pitching the, the giant, luxurious Fangoria offices. It was just some crummy hole in the wall. Right, yeah, of course. You know, but the, the, the New York pub lunch is great. If you ever get a chance to have one, I recommend it. I mean... They're, they're giving you shots at like 5 p.m. in New York. And bar girls. The, the bar girls are running up and they're, they're pouring shots into your mouth on the way to, and you know, it was just, so with that, I wanted to do all four Jaws movies. And when they did the thing on the island, that convinced me because everybody was there. All my ducks were in a row. Most, oh, go ahead. We, then we hopped the Chinatown bus out of Manhattan into, right in. The last, yeah, the last, after the after we hit Manhattan, the last 400 miles in the satellite truck, we got on a lucky Chinatown bus that took us to the, uh, um, the Woods Hole. Yeah, where we caught the last boat to Martha's Vineyard. I stayed at, we stayed at a campground in the middle of skunk season. So we were in, uh, in skunk season in the middle of uh, 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 Martha's Vineyard. I was using my cell phone because we almost kept stepping into clusters of skunks, but we stayed in this campground. It was run by a firefighter who was on the Alderman Council and got the permit pushed through to build a campground. Because everything else was like sold out in $400 a night. Every hotel was sold out on the island, and so we're staying there, in this campground. There's no anywhere, Pete. It's, yeah. It's not like the Maryland Shore. Donald mapped us across country. Yeah, Donald, that was amazing. He mapped us across country, and we're in this campground in the pouring rain, and we left in such a hurry. I've been carrying this 
uh, Donald been carrying this tent on his back. We found out when we were going to put it up, there was no uh, pull to raise the tent. So we're literally laying in the rain with the tent over us like a shroud. Jesus. But all the interviews in that book are done in the city council room chambers. The actual Martha's Martha's Vineyard City Council where Brody is shot down when he tries to close the beaches. So that book did well. It was fun because when you do articles, you're mostly covering one thing or one person. Yeah, right. And with this, I got to cover everybody I wanted to cover, you know, and I got to cover all four of the Jaws movies. The book was what they called an evergreen, where every time summer kicks off, you'll see my book shoot up like 100 slots on Amazon, which is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did, let me ask you, did you have a fear or fascination with sharks prior to Jaws, or did that kind of open, like... Your imagination. We were in the uh, we're as again we're from the Midwest, so there wasn't much chance of seeing a shark. But we were vacationing in Florida as kids, and I remember wearing a Jaws two beach towel when a a ten foot hammerhead came into the swimming area and they blew the whistle and emptied the beaches, and that led to an obsession because I did see and the shark fin. It's really weird because in the movie Jaws, because it's a robot, it goes in a certain you know it goes in a certain direction. But the real thing glides to and fro. And I watched this guy pedaled out. Or he, the, the lifeguard pedaled out to see how big the shark was because it was in Florida. You know, we were staying at uh, uh, Contiki Campground in Florida. And my dad, my uncle Jerry, my brother Tom and I were talking before we knew there was a shark in the water. And all these fish started throwing themselves into the air. I mean, hurling. And we couldn't figure out what it was. And it was because there was a shark around us. And the fish were literally throwing themselves up and out of the water because they did not want... They would rather risk losing air for a couple seconds than, than being in the, sh- the water with this. And when the shark fin broke water around us, the four of us were together. But it was utterly terrifying. It circled us like a couple times and then it went down again. And we're all slowly walking back to the beach as a group. You know what I mean? Right, we're, yeah. You don't, you know, and so I think that led to an obsession. With the Incredible Hulk book, it's a two-pound book. I I did way too much running on that. I covered all five seasons, all the TV movies, the Ang Lee movie, the Edward Norton movie. What happened with that is Marvel is a billion-dollar franchise. Yeah. And yet it all sprang. Their first ever success was this lowly little TV show. And this TV show has such importance. It's the very first Marvel product that people wanted to watch. You know, they, they've done cartoons that didn't really click. They did a Spider-Man TV I, show. I remember that one, yeah. And that's their flagship character. Hulk was kind of this uh, ugly stepchild. I mean, <laughs> people forget the Hulk was canceled after its first six issues as a comic book. And Stan Lee kept bringing the Hulk back because he believed in the character. You know, I mean... And Man and the Hulk were, were put into this book together that got canceled because nobody wanted to read Ant Man and nobody wanted to read Hulk. And I think when you look at it now, this, this meek, man, mild mannered guy, whenever he's cheated by life, whenever he's frustrated, whenever he's uh, wronged, he literally turns into this monosyllabic prehistoric creature that writes every wrong. That is one of the greatest concepts of anything. <laughs> You know, and, and the Hulk never had a book. And I remember I remember sitting in a bookstore with my brother Donald 
And we were, it was a bionic book. The book was on the $6 million man and the bionic woman TV show. And I, I was reading this book and I looked over at my, because I, I love when a book, when a TV series that gets no love, that had no ancillary market like that, the Hulk was like Kolchak the Night Stalker, this cult thing that there was almost nothing on. And it deserved, it deserved, a, there, there's the best film book, the, the best TV book ever written, I think, is The Twilight Zone Companion, because it was the first one, by Mark Scott Zakree. Nobody knew the story at End of the Twilight Zones. Every kid who ever stumbles around the Twilight Zone in UHF or on cable, and you're just hypnotized by how great it is. And... At that point, you couldn't read anything about Twilight Zone or the Hulk or anything. So, to me, to do a Twilight Zone companion for the Incredible Hulk TV series, which never had any book on the... So I, I looked at this Bionic book in, in the, this bookstore, and I said to my brother Donald, boy, I wish somebody would do a book on this. I would read... I like to tell on the Hulk. I would read it. And he looked at me like it was the stupidest thing ever, <laughs> and he, he said, then why don't you write one, dummy? <laughs> I mean, I, when I saw the Hulk as a kid, you know, I was really young. I remember that was when Lou Ferrigno turned into the Hulk. It was scary. Like, I was like, that's what the hell is that? Like, Ten years before CG, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it was it left an impression for sure. It did. I mean, it's an, it's an iconic look for him. You know what I mean? I mean, he's the only live-action Hulk. You can't do that. I mean, they would run him in slow-mo running and... and uh, and he's scary looking. I mean, yeah. they, they, you're right, Pete. One of the things the creator of the show, Kenneth Johnson, told me is they toned down the Hulk's look after the first season because it was scaring so many children. The, the parents kept writing them and saying they, they, he was writing the show for adults, is how he put it. But he goes, the monster was there to sell the show to kids. But it's a, it's a drama relationship show, except for four minutes every every. Four minutes in two different sequences in every episode, he turns into a, this monster who smashes a car. That was like the, the formula for it? That was the formula. There would be two Hulk outs per episode. And when you looked at the show, and it, there was no love whatsoever in the show. There's no Incredible Hulk book except for mine. I mean, uh, um, and that's why it's two pounds. It's a two-pound book. When you look at Kim Cattrall makes one of her first appearances on the show. She was on that? Oh, yeah, as an Indian, as a Native American. And, and, uh, um, and uh, when you looked at the show, um, Spirits, Something Spirits is the name of the episode. But when you look at the show, Kim Cattrall's on there and all these other actors are on there. And it just, you'd see uh, Richard Christian Matheson, the son of uh, R.C. Matheson now, the son of Richard Matheson made his debut running the show. He wrote four of the best episodes of the series. And, you know, he went on the right cult classics like 3 O'Clock High. So when you, you ask him about doing The Incredible Hulk, nobody ever talked to him about it. So he'd have nothing but stories, you know? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And so you also have Buck Rogers. And what's the fascination there? Uh, Buck Rogers was one of those shows that was in syndication. It was women in spandex at the right time. <laughs> And when you look at and but to me what fascinated me about Buck Rogers is if the Hulk was genre but it was highbrow, Buck Rogers was kind of lowbrow. You know, I mean, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis made her debut on the show, one of her debuts on the show. You know, she actually did Buck Rogers. She filmed Halloween. Uh, she, uh, she filmed Halloween before she did her Buck Rogers episode. But she was up for Halloween with another actress, uh, Anne Lockhart another Buck Rogers guest, 
she and Jamie Lee Curtis were both up for Halloween at the same time. And you're, you're, when I did the Buck Rogers book, a lot of it were people from the Hulk book, which was kind of lucky for me. And there were great, there were great writers like Alan Bernard. You know, there's this, Alan Bernard has written all these great books, Molokai and all this, and uh, um, he'd been a writer on The Twilight Zone and all this other stuff. He wrote what they, uh, one of the greatest Batman stories ever told, To Kill a Legend. And you read his original Buck Rogers scripts in the Margaret Herrick Library, and they're fantastic. And you're thinking, how did this get dumbed down into what they made? And it's a fun show. It's like, you know what I mean? I mean, I can't defend Buck Rogers. Well, I, as an adult, when I was doing the Hulk book, I would watch some episodes of the Hulk, and the Incredible Hulk, and they would be better than you remembered. Oh, wow. And, but you'd watch some episodes of the Buck Rogers show, and it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, I love this at 11. How can this be terrible? It's <laughs> wrong. You know what I mean? I mean, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And the women in spandex in every episode, it was a really brilliant. The women are as important as the robots that show because they, they have space hookers and everything else in every episode to keep people watching. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine that. That's and when I, one of the great memories on the Buck Rogers show. Uh, uh, one, of, one of the guys I interviewed for my high school paper, Mick Garris. Uh, Mick and his wife, Cynthia Garris, were really good to me when I was a kid. They, you know what I mean? Mick let us read the first script we ever read. You know, and my brother Tom said it's like he invented the wheel for us. You know, and uh, when Mick was having something shot in, in, in the 80s, they invited me along on the set to watch him shooting it. Yeah, uh, no, no, it was uh, Universal Backlot, which to me, the uni Universal made all the sci-fi and horror stuff I grew up with, so they made The Incredible Hulk, so of course Universal, they made The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein, Wolf Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, no, it was, uh, that was all shot at, uh, we were doing all the stuff in the boat, so Mick had written this uh, episodic, and we were kicking it on the set, and I remember we were running back, we were walking back to his office, and I saw, in the 80s, you know, I saw this giant styrofoam Buck Rogers spaceship. You know, the, 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 the starfighter and, the, and the, uh, the pirate ship for Buck Rogers. And they were laying next to a dumpster and they'd been spray painted with the word trash. And they were laying next to the dumpster too big to fit in. And I remember having this moment in front of Mick and Cynthia, you know, I, 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 I just started college, and, but it was like seeing the family dog hit by a car. Nobody understands but you what this dog means to you. I'm looking at this junkie starfighter, and Mick and Cynthia didn't know what the hell it was, and they didn't know why this was a momentous, terrible moment. Right. Mm. I, uh, it was a closed set, so I, my camera stayed in my bag. I... What I should have done is taken a ton of uh, shots of the uh, of the spaceship for my book. I could only mention the book in person. I remember Erin Gray telling me when she read that, she goes, I always wonder what they did with the Starfighters. Of course, it's universal. They threw them out. And the only reason they weren't smashed up is they were too big to fit in the dumpster. But I remember seeing them right by stage 28, which is where they shot Jurassic Park and the Incredible Hulk pilot. But uh, just seeing those starfighters, there was trash spray painted on them. So when I when I pitched the Buck Rogers book, it was just something. It felt like I had a little gas in the tank. It wasn't as classic as Jaws or or or, in, or or the Incredible Hulk. But because so many people had a miserable time on Buck Rogers, 
it's the best stories, you know? I mean, uh, Aaron Gray has this great story uh, because uh, um, Gil Gerard and Bill Clinton, back when he was a senator, were old friends. And so they had the premiere of Buck Rogers and Little Rock, and she remembers the governor hitting on her. It's a great story, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the Dorothy Stratton stories. Dorothy Stratton was on Buck Rogers, and they all tell these stories about, they, they were filming the Blues Brothers next door, so Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi came to the set of Buck Rogers to hit on Dorothy Stratton. <laughs> you know, I love stories like that. I love the story behind the story. And because Buck Rogers, again, like the Hulk, wasn't getting the love it deserved, it's the only Buck Rogers TV series book out there, you know? Yeah, right, right. What uh, what was Mick Garrett shooting when you were there? Do you remember? At the risk of dating myself, it was an episode of Amazing Stars. Okay, that, that's yeah. actually what I was going to Yeah, it was, uh, I, I shook hands, when they took me to the set, I shook hands with Charlie Sheen, watching them spraying fake sweat all over him. And I remember uh, Timothy Hutton was directing an episode, because it was... It was Amblin at the height of Amblin. And yeah, right. They won't even mention Amblin on the, on the back lot now. They'll make everyone look over at Spartacus Square so you won't notice the Amblin lot. They'll distract everyone in the tram. They'll make it look to the right when it's to the left. And I, covering stuff for Amblin later for Starlog and Fangoria, you would hear a million microphones from hidden security. There's a stranger walking down the road. You know, coming down the road, approaching, um, you know, they would, he's by the well. There was a well, I remember a publicist named Anne-Marie Stein, really great lady, during a set visit on something Amblin did. She, I, I read in Rolling Stone that Steven Spielberg had a shark head in a, in a uh, uh, wishing well on, on the back lot. And she goes, do you want to look at it? She goes, do you want to see the wishing well? And I remember standing with her, the wishing well is just this junky wishing well. It wasn't underground or anything with a plastic shark head welded to the bottom of the well. But she points up, it's, it's like 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night on the set of some Amblin movie. And here, late 90s, and here, ding, 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 ding. And she points up at a window and she goes, that's John Williams' office. And she goes, we're either hearing John Williams or assistant working on something. Oh, wow. And I mean, it was this amazing moment where you're uh, uh, just looking up at this window, you know? You're at the North Pole. What, so you said Amblin was kind of a hush-hush word on the set? They didn't want any visitors, so it's surrounded by security. So if you've got a pass to be there, you usually park and have to walk up the road. And security is watching you, trying to identify you before you get up there. I see, I see. I see. And this is before that guy tried to hurt Spielberg, you know, they come wandering around with the duct tape and all this. Jeez. You know? But to see, to see the Amblin offices then with these giant standees and all these amazing, you know, I mean, you'd see Timothy, Van, uh, Timothy Hutton hitting on the script grill, you'd see some guy walking down... And you'd recognize everybody. It was just kind of amazing to watch. Atari video games, like the arcade version. It was like, a, and, and Steven Spielberg, I've been in Steven Spielberg's Amblin screening room, you know, uh, uh, when I was covering something for Amblin in the 90s. And I remember he had the framed, he had the, in the middle of the screening room, they take you up, they take you up to his, uh, uh, it's like going, it's like going to the nicest movie theater you've ever been. They open up the they open up the, the snack bar and let you pick anything you want to eat while watching the, the dailies and the, not the dailies but whatever they're showing you. So you eat you know even on stuff like uh, uh, let's see I'm trying to yeah 
So we were watching some animated thing for him, and they they open up the the uh, snack bar, and so you everything was in the giant Nestle's Crunch. Anything was the biggest version you would find in the AMC. You know, the drink and everything, the most beautiful seats you'd ever been in. And I remember on the wall of the screening room, he had the original artwork from a Mad Magazine Jurassic uh, Jurassic Park parody framed. You know, it had Jeff Goldblum drawn by, I want to say, Mark Drucker or someone. But it was framed. It was the original artwork framed on the wall. Damn. It was, it was kind of amazing to watch. You know, it was like going to the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, I bet. That's, that sounds like a lot of fun. So, Pat, you've been on sets... I guess, I don't know if that crashing it counts as illegally, but you've been been there from that angle, from journalism, but you also act. So I wanted to ask you, because you've been in some movies, some big movies, you've been in some music videos. What is the difference between being on a movie set versus being in a music video? Uh, a music video is usually mercenary. It's, it's a, You're going to be listening to the same song for 15 to 17 hours. Right. You know, and... Uh, um, the money is more precious than a music video. The money is more precious than a music video. Whereas a set, you know, or a commercial, you're good, you're there for a set amount of time, and there's money, and there's everything. With a music video, it's fast, fast, fast. They want to get as much done as quickly as possible. You know, it's right. flat rate for open hours for a lot of flat time. rate for open hours. So it's a total mercenary operation. Eighteen yeah. hours, twenty hours, or not? I knew, like, Donald and I did uh, fake plastic trees. One of the first uh, Radiohead videos is uh, for Jake Scott directing, and I remember, I remember uh, Tom York asking Donald and I where he should go in Los Angeles. Him and the band are like, "You guys live here. Where where do we go? Where do they, they wanted to find the cemetery where they shot the loved one? Yeah, they wanted the uh, the 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 entire band was looking for the cemetery where they shot the loved one. It's the forest lawn, I think, Glendale over here. Yeah, so we gave them directions on how to find the loved one cemetery, and they're like, and I'm trying to get them to go to the Halloween house and all this other stuff. <laughs> That's great. And because we we don't like that as much as the loved one, I know. But if you want to see the bad cave, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think the drummer wanted to see the bad cave, which was kind of cool. Um, you have the story about being on the California Love video shoot, and that's pretty insane. So would you mind? Not at all. Not the the California Love video was was the weird thing is I was they brought me in for special business. I do this four legged run. Plus we're visiting our parents in Tucson. We were on our way to visit our parents in Tucson, and Donald said, "This is easy money." We stopped in the. It was shot in the Victorville Dry Lake bed from Lethal Weapon out of Londo, and. it was, they were all wearing, everybody was wearing outfits from like uh, the wardrobe house that did Demolition Man. So everywhere you looked, even Tupac, they're wearing Demolition Man wardrobe. That's what that is? Yeah, yeah that's where you see the tire tread. Uh, Every low budget post-apocalypse movie you work on for like two years, three years after that. Yeah, that was right. For the entire 1990s, every time you did a post-apocalypse movie in, or video in the, in the 90s, you would be wearing the Demolition Man gear before they wore it all out. So then when you see Tupac wearing the tire tread shoulders, that's Demolition Man wardrobe. Yeah, I guess the Mad Max stuff would all be Australian. So, Well, they built, they, they put up the Thunderdome like days after a major earthquake. And so I was there because they wanted my dog run. I did my dog run in some videos. Ex- and they went, Explain that to, to the Oh, I'm sorry. I do like, some people call it a bear crawl, but I'm, I'm faster on, I run as fast as a dog on all four limbs. You can see me doing it in a bunch of music videos. You know, you can tell I, I do it in horror movies as monsters, but you can't tell it's me. But like, like you'll see a, a version of it in uh, Incubus's talk show on mute. 
where I'm, a, I'm like a pet of the animal people, so you'll see me doing it. And, well, for you guys listening at home, Pat's a big guy. Like, how, how tall are you? I'm six foot nine. Six foot nine. So imagine a six foot nine dude just running on all fours, lightning fast. It scares people, you know what I mean? I mean, I've done it on auditions, and it's, you know what I mean? I mean, when I do it in a, uh, uh, I have a horror movie coming out with Danny Trejo called, I'm going to screw up the title, The Prey, The Prey, okay. So, you know what I mean? You'll see me doing it in a cave and, you know, as a, like a monster monkey spider or whatever the hell I am. <laughs> I've got like six eyes. I don't want to doubles right. I don't want to violate the NDA. <laughs> but I, I, you know what I mean? And when you see it, you're right, because of the sheer size. I used to do it. Uh, I did it in the Detroit Fairgrounds in a contest with the other kids. They called it Bear Crawl then. I used to follow the family Irish Center around when I was little, you know, on all fours. And, jump on you. And so when I, I would go as fast as she was, and she would jump on you and try and knock you over because it freaks them out. You know, every dog I've done it for tries to topple you because they see it as offensive somehow. Yeah, so that's that's quite a skill. So you were doing that for the video. They were going to have me do it in the video. Where's a dog costume? Where they put me in a dog costume and like a crash helmet and a dog costume, and then they turned around and. They, the, the floor, they put all these jutting metal spikes up in the floor to make it look futuristic. And I said, well, you've got, I've got, to, you've got to move those. They'll turn my hands to hamburger. And the director goes, can't you just run really, really fast and avoid them? I go, no, because there's spikes all over. And so while waiting to film it, they were grabbing all these people and taking them in a cherry picker and tying them up on the ceiling of the Thunderdome, 70 feet in the air, and leaving them up there. This is like high and, winds and the... And they said, like one, one of the crew goes, wouldn't it be cool to have the big guy and his brother up there, hanging up there? And they, they, they take up a lot of space. We'd have to put more people up there. And it's only the plywood. And it was only plywood, and they're hanging you 70 feet in the air. And I told the paramedic, and the paramedic is hiding us in the ambulance, you know, and they're, where are the big guys? Big guys, got to go up there. And Tupac was really drinking out of the bottle, you know, and he was doing donuts. He was doing donuts in the dirt, and he nearly hit some crew guys because he was drinking and driving, literally. Yeah, right. And it's a dry leg bed, and it was it was a scary set because everybody had a gun. Our friend Kevin Grievous was there. He's in a gas mask and a pork pie hat. <laughs> and the three of us, Donald, him, and me, I think, are the only guys on set who didn't have guns. Everywhere you looked, somebody... Not prop was, guns, real guns. Yeah, not for you. He's right. Not prop guns, real guns. And they're all turning them sideways like John Woo's the killer, showing, showing each other they all got killer guns. So you would be walking and suddenly you'd be aware a, a, when one of the crew guys is pointing a gun at you sideways, tracking a John Woo style while showing someone else how good his new gun is. And people were literally pointing real guns at you all weekend long in violation of everything. Everywhere you walk, they're putting guns at you, tracking you with their guns. Because in the, it was the most armed set I'd ever been on, real guns. Jeez. It was terrifying. It was really, really terrifying. When Suge Knight came to the set, Michael Clark, Clark Duncan from the Green Mile was his bodyguard. And Suge Knight was a huge dude, wide. He wasn't as big as uh, Duncan, but he was wider and, and just buff. I mean, he looked like the Kingpin, which yeah. is ironic, you know, because Clark Duncan played him later. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. 
And I remember you, you told me that they weren't going to pay you or some, something along that. At the way. end of the night, at the, and, you know, uh, at the end of the night, there's a trailer with the There's a guys. trailer where they're giving you the money and they're paying all the bodybuilders. And we're all waiting to get paid. It's a long, long night. You're dusty, you're dirty, you're sweating. Like 50, 100 people out there. And I, I, I had a special rate. And she arbitrarily, she goes, uh, uh, she paid the bodybuilders. And when one of the people there who brought everyone in, she turned around and she goes, um, you know what, I'm just going to give you guys blah, blah, blah. And she was announcing a fee, which was not what was agreed on, which was not, you know, the special. And so she told one of the bodyguards, one of the, the women, I won't say her name, I don't know, you know. But she told the bodyguard, listen, I'll give you an extra 50 to get rid of the rest of the guys in line. And so, you know, and so the bodybuilder comes up to me and he puts his hands on my shoulder. And I said, you just got paid. And I said, uh, and I said, I'm about to tell all 200 of these people that you're here to help rip them off. And I said, obviously you're. Uh, he goes, listen, man, I'm just doing what I'm told. And when he said that, I said, obviously you were a bodybuilder, a professional. He goes, yep. And I go, how do you think a broken nose would look at your next contest? And he turned towards her and he goes, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> she paid the full amount and uh, and to Donald and I. And I just, I turned around and I said, hey, listen, she's getting ready to rip you guys off before school, <laughs> you know? But that's why music, because music videos aren't like a film where you have all the paperwork and everything is, you know, they're established, it's a studio thing. Move, move, music videos are the wild, wild west where sometimes the they play it fast and loose. And they're built to the artist anyway. So. They're built to the artist anyway, so they're trying to save a little money and they're trying to get rid of you as fast as possible. Right, I've I've done a couple music videos. A friend of mine back east shot a lot of independent. Uh, I remember you went back for one. You you know when you, when you were leaving trivia to go do one. Remember? I don't know if that was a music video, but it was something. But I've done some. I did a, a Green Day video out here. That was probably the biggest one. Which one are you in? It's something called either like Hang the DJ or Shoot the DJ. Uh, the huh. the guy who filmed that was the guy who actually shot. The smells like Teen Spirit Samuel video. Bear. Samuel Bear, yes. yeah, we did, we did, a, we did an IBM commercial for him. Well, <laughs> what's What's funny about the what I learned after I told someone that that knew about him and the smells like Teen Spirit video was that when Nirvana released Nevermind, they had to shoot a video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, and Kurt Cobain did not want to do that, so he saw. Bayer's reels. It's like, this dude does terrible shit. Let's hire him. Yeah. And that blew up in his face. Yeah. Bayer, Bayer started a comic book company with his brother, I think, about a year ago. You know what I mean? Oh, right. really? So, he was he's, attached for years to the Vanishing Point remake. We did a, uh, we did an IBM commercial with him where, again, once again, post-apocalyptic mud and rain all at a soundstage at Universal. But music videos, you work with some really cool people. Uh, um, J the, our, our Radiohead video was directed by Jake Scott, Ridley Scott's son. We actually did two videos oh, for shit, that. Yeah, and, 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 uh, yeah and, and Ridley Scott's son, or Jake, he would tell you great stories during lunch and all that. And he was very polite. And, of course, he looked at it like Ridley Scott, and you could pretend you're making a Ridley Scott movie. <laughs> uh, we're there with, uh, what's his name, from Walking Dead? And, and uh, one of the guys from uh, Walking Dead was in the video, and the, the guy from Apocalypto. Who gets his brains knocked out by the rock? Donald says, uh, "What's his name from uh, sh uh, um, Bro from uh, Brothers, uh, the, the Boondock Saints?" 
Yeah, I was in was one of the uh, um, Norman Reedus. I guess Norman Reedus in the video as well. He's yeah, a shoplifter. He's a shoplifter. Wow. We're the gay couple fighting over coupons. <laughs> and so, yeah, you guys have done some commercials, but I read something about who gave you your SAG card. Oh, David Lynch. Yes. Talk yeah. Um, Donald, Tom, and I wrote a commercial for David Lynch in Twin Peaks in college. And, uh, um, yeah, that wound up, that wound up uh, uh, um, it was on... Who killed Laura Palmer? It was a campaign to find out for the, the, the Lynch's series. The, the, the summer before, the whole Game of Thrones spell buildup. Yeah, the whole Game of Thrones buildup to the second season. They wound up doing the uh, um, campaign. They wound up. They wanted the best, the most creative answers to who killed Laura Palmer, and ours was Laura Palmer. Was I still remember this because it, uh, we shot it. We shot it at the diner from where Harry met Sally, where Rob Reiner's mother says, "I'll have what she's having." Okay. After she fixed the orgasm? Right, right. Yeah, so um, ours was Laura Palmer was killed by Bigfoot. That man like, that man, <laughs> that uh, ape like, uh, that half man, half ape creature that roams the Pacific Northwest. He'll prove an interesting case for Agent Cooper. It's on one of the Blu rays. He'll prove an in interesting case for Dale Cooper, who first must uh, prove Sasquatch exists before he can arraign him for murder. <laughs> They so Lynch like that. Yeah, they, they made him laugh. So we wound up uh, uh, that they wound up putting me like three commercials there, and uh, and that led to the, again with my sound card that led to getting. I've done I've done about thirty commercials. Um, I'm the I was the first singing waiter for the six dollar burger for Carl's Jr. and Hardee's across the country. Um, I've done commercials for Dippin' Dots and some of Donald Donald I did. A major Coca, we did a big commercial for Coca Cola. Uh, I, I did uh, uh, commercials for Burger King, Geico, AT&T, you know, construction worker, caveman, Viking, that sort of thing. Right, right, right. There's a certain type we fall into, so it's usually goons. They like goons. Uh, goons and muggers are, are two things we go. Uh, um, the one that bummed me out is. We keep going in for the, uh, uh, you know, the commercial where it's always a big guy breaking into somebody's house. Donald, what's the last one we did? Oh, uh, well, there was we, the, uh, not AT and T. Uh, we'll book one of them. We, they keep sending us in for the thugs who break into the house, and the woman and child are calling the security company. And the last time. The last time it was between uh, me and the mugger who got it, and they go, "You just look too sweet to me," <laughs> which I guess is a backhanded compliment, but it bummed me up. Right. I'm. Uh, oh, and on videos, I'm. I'm the golden king in Tom Petty's "It's Good to Be the King" video. All right, so, I'll rewatch that. Um, well, what was David Lynch like when you you met him? Or he's very folksy. Very. Uh, that's what shocks you as well, because you look at his movies. But he was very folksy. He's, he says golly like Jimmy Olsen, you know. And uh, uh, he was very personable, you know. And you, you thanked him. I thanked him, and I saw him later on another edition afterwards, and I thanked him for the, getting my sad card. And he goes, "Golly, shucks, you're welcome," you know. And he meant it, though. You know what I mean? I mean, with all the psychosexual stuff in his movies, he's actually a very, very sweet guy. Right on. Um, something else that's kind of a fun fact about you and Don is you guys, one of you won like 
free pizza from Pizza Hut for a year. This, <laughs> yeah, this, this is Donald. I won because of Donald. And the, I bitched at Donald uh, at one of the hockey games because Donald, Donald, we, we jokingly call him Mr. Lucky in the family. He, he always wins stuff. And he put me in for the uh, the man cave. Well, the LA Kings man cave for the year they won the cup. The LA Kings Pizza Hut man cave for the first year they won the cup. And uh, um, and Donald Donald put me in, you know, anytime we go anywhere. And I, I'm kind of a jerk in that, you know, since I, I'm usually the one driving, I'm like, come on, Don, nobody ever wins those. You know, tapping my watch and giving him a hard time. Oh, just give me a 10 minute, give me a minute. Well, he submitted me, and I wound up winning, which meant he won. We we got Pizza Hut for a year, and the hilarious thing is, uh, um, he got the signed jersey from the entire team for the Stanley Cup winning year. He so. won me a uh, he won me uh, uh, the signed jersey. I gave that to him because it, it was his. I was signed by the winning the, the championship team. I he got me a, a ginormous flat screen TV, uh, uh, the, the video Xbox. Xbox it, it was just everything, and and uh, um, it was delivered by the ice queen. Yeah, I opened my door. Uh, uh, they wanted to make sure I was home, and the ice queens and the mascot, the animal mascot, just marched into my place, and all these <laughs> cheerleaders and Bailey. the little sig- the Bailey, the the what is lion. it, the lion, and the six year old next door wondered why I had thirty women and a monster come into my house. But the great thing is. They the hilarious thing is they would play it on the commercials during the game. On the Diamond Vision. On the Diamond Vision of them coming into my tiny little place with all their stuff. And it was really weird because... Um, strangers would stop. Strangers, sporting strangers would stop me. Yeah, Donald's right. When we'd go to our hockey games, people would be clapping me on and on the back and all this. And I got it for a year. And, of course, you're never... And basically you get it for like a year and a half because you're never going to use all the coupons. And I remember Thunder Levin, who I mentioned earlier, the writer of Sharknado, he had a, uh, at the party, he had a premiere party at the editor's house for, he did American Battleships, and then Universal ended up suing them into changing the title to American Warships. <laughs> and so at the premiere party, we went to the editor's beautiful Santa Monica home. And we had been to the war to the battleship premiere, ironically. Yeah, we'd been to the premiere of the $200 million battleship that earlier that week. And so uh, we stopped on the way to the editor's place. An A-frame up in Topanga. Is this beautiful A-frame up in Topanga? Donald, so, uh, Donald does a better job describing stuff than I do. So we go to this beautiful A-frame up in Topanga Canyon, and we, we grab these Pizza Hut pizzas, and the entire party just devours the pizza. It was well, so hilarious. After the Pizza Hut, they had never seen one of the, the, the beloved golden coupons. Yeah, because they, they would give me this special ticket. And we were at the Topanga. We ordered the pizza close to the house because we wanted to be hot when we got there. And they stopped the line. They stopped the line at the Pizza Hut because they all want to see the Willy Wonka magic ticket. They go, we've heard about these, but we've never seen them. And then Donald and I are laughing because the vaccine in my car is full of them. We just bust them out when we're <laughs> But it was weird because they were they wanted to take a picture with us, and they wanted to take a picture with the tickets. And it was just, it was, it was, they kept saying, it's the magic ticket, it's the magic ticket. They'd heard, all these Pizza Hut managers had heard about the magic ticket, but they'd never seen it. Yeah, right. And they wanted to know who from Pizza Hut helped deliver the tickets. 
because they brought drinks, they brought cups, they brought everything for everybody. A couple players would come up carrying your uh, flat screen. It was it was it was really surreal. That was all because of Donald. So I felt guilty when congratulating me when it was Donald, and I would explain it was Donald, you know, as I'm doing now. Right. Can you, to this day, can you touch Pizza Hut, or are you just like, I'm done with that? Weirdly enough, I could totally touch Pizza Hut. <laughs> I mean, I, to me, Pizza Hut's great. There's more than one topping, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I mean, I just, I'm from Detroit, so we grew up with Little Caesar. Ah, okay, right. And people out here hate Little Caesar. I mean, uh, like like uh, our, our mutual friend, Neil, he goes, uh, he likes, you know what I mean? He goes, you know, I'm from Chicago. The Little Caesar's an insult. And it's like, it was the best pizza on earth when we were kids because it was the only pizza in Detroit. Wow. Yeah, the, 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 like, Domino's. We the, the Marilyn and Tony Jankowitz would bring home Pizza Hut. I ate Pizza Hut. It was the only pizza. To me, it's the only real pizza. It's just pizza. So when I start eating, when I start eating uh, uh, Pizza Hut, it felt, well, it's similar but different. Than, I wouldn't say it's better than Little Caesars. Well, it was Little Caesars, was who we grew up with. But you know what I mean? It was just, I can still eat it to this day. It's delicious. All right. That, that's awesome. Cause I'm I, a large mammal. <laughs> no. Pizza has always been my favorite food, and I just can't imagine, like, you know, I was a picky eater as a kid, but I can eat pizza every day, but not. I didn't always eat the same brand of pizza, so I can only imagine. Well, there's like five chains out of Detroit in pizza. I and you would mix it up. Sometimes I would have anchovies, even though everyone hates anchovies. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, uh, um, you would mix it up and change the topping. But to me, pizza, like I'm like you, I'm pizza's pizza. You know, I love pizza. Right, right. Now that's wild because it's like I, I don't know when he's ever won the lottery, but I find this more fascinating that you won pizza for a year. To me, and Donald mentioned the Xbox and the flat screen. To me, it was the Pizza Hut. For a year. It was like everything else was the ocean because once they said free Pizza Hut for a year, that's all I heard. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't blame you. Well, yeah, grandfather played the Irish sweepstakes and all that kind of thing. Our little brother won like a truck off Kiss FM. And yeah, no, Donald and my brother and and uh, we're all have always been very lucky in winning contests, that sort of thing. You know. How many siblings do you guys have? Or tricky question now, sadly. Uh, there were there were five of us originally, and now there's four of us. So you know. Or was it all brothers or four brothers uh, and one sister? Our sister Diane, uh, Diane, who lives in Seattle, West Seattle. Okay. You know, very happy homemaker, former CPA. Gotcha. <laughs> and your 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 brother Tom, who passed, he wrote Gross Point Blank. He did. Uh, he wrote Gross Point Blank. He had a bunch of stuff optioned, and he did some rewrite work on other stuff. But yeah, the one that the one that sold that people know him from is uh, Gross Point Blank. He also had a big sale to Steven Spielberg on a script called Kung's Boo Theater. You know, that that one got him in the top of variety. But, yeah, uh, uh, Gross Point Blank, I think it resonated because it was the most autobiographical to him. You know, he wasn't where he wanted to be when he was invited to his 10th high school reunion. Really? His 10th anniversary, you know, high school reunion. And he was filled with self-loathing at the time, you know, um... He was filled with self-loathing working at uh, uh, Big Lots, you know, uh, um, and it was, you know, after college and stuff, and, uh, and, and he was slumming, and he was subbing, he was substitute teaching, and he was working at Big Lots, you know, and, and he put all this self-loathing into Gross Point Blank, <laughs> which, you know, the, to the title is a nod towards our, Gross Point, for those who've never been to Michigan, it's the Beverly Hills of Michigan. Okay. 
And there was a quote he really loved, there is no tragedy in Gross Point. Well, Jack Kerouac. You know, from Jack Kerouac, which, which I, you know, he uses the opening line of the script, you know, and, uh, um, and so, yeah, and so that, there, there's sort of a family history there, you know what I mean? And, you know, it, it, it's, you, you know, you always feel like uh, when, when it's on cable and you're turning channels, it's like running into Tom unexpectedly, you know? Yeah, right. Um, Shit, where was I going to go with this? I just, I just had a... I'm going to tell you as a, as a as an interviewer, try to leave the shit out of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure... Oh, I, I said shit in front of somebody. I'm trying to think of the older gal who corrected me. We never say shit, darling. <laughs> uh, no, I, I have a potty mouth, so... I'm no, that's good, it. that's good. No, <laughs> I, I'm a casual swearer, too, but I... I've tried not to do it. I mean, when you when you interview some oldster, older guy or gal, they they usually, you don't need to be profane. <laughs> no, that's a fair fair point. I'm I'm always trying to remind myself. I'm we're lucky. We have two little nephews. We have these little nephews in the family now. So I'm getting on my casual swearing up. Was was Tom happy with how Gross Point Blank turned out as a movie? He was. The weird thing is. Uh, um, when it went out, it, it was almost Kiefer Sutherland almost made it. You know what I mean? I mean, when he was when he was writing the pitch letter while he was uh, while he was working at Big Lots and working at he had this interesting theory. What he would do is he would work at the at the uh, Big Lots and then he would teach. You know, and then teach and then go to Big Lots. And he loved the dry whiteboards. He would take the dry whiteboards and he would write different film titles in the classroom. In the classroom during his break, you know, when no one right, was there. Right, right. Oh, I know that drill. Yeah, and, and so he would write them in different colored markers and sit in the back of the room during lunch, you know, he'd erase them all before the kids came in. And he would pick the title that he thought was the strongest. And when he wrote Gross, he'd had stuff optioned, but he was writing, he would write this cover letter, you know, and uh, he would pitch, while working as a grad, you know, he was in grad school and he was pitching this. And when Gross went... Because uh, uh, it, it had a close call with Kiefer Sutherland, who wound up making Truth or Consequences New Mexico instead. So when it got made, yeah, he was. I think he, he'd always, you know, my brother. Well, uh, my brother was always kind of shy and stuff, but he always he was very happy with how it came out. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember being with him at the premiere. In uh, the premiere party, it was in Westwood at the Crest Theater, and then we walked down the street and they they had some loft party for it in Westwood and I remember they were beaming the title Gross Point Blank on the on, on like the skylight so it looked like it was floating on the clouds the band was playing they, they were playing music from the album and I remember looking at we have champagne flutes and I looked at them and I said um, this is a, you know we're watching Drew Barrymore danced with Patrick, who's Dr. McSteamy? Patrick Dempsey is dancing with Drew Barrymore in front of us, you know, this big premiere party. And I looked over at Tom, you know, and he's, you know, hanging against the wall, being quiet. And I go, this is all because of something you wrote at three o'clock in the morning in your underpants. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and that was, that was really weird and exciting for him. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I, I can only imagine. Um, he, it's, it's gotta be pretty rewarding to write something, see it come to life and be happy with the end result. Cause that can go so 
so far south. It can, it can, and, and luckily it, the, through the process it, it maintained everything, you know, and you okay, got to... It started in UA, we've done a show called Culture Clash, and they had their detective comedy that we were talking to them about, and the same lineup, and Pomona Queen, which is a terrific cult novel by Kev Nunn, that was all in the same production slate, and all that stuff wound up in turnaround. Yeah, every single project, when UA had picked up Gross Point Blank, Every single project with it went into turnaround. It's like 15 different shows. And it kept, every time something went into turnaround, it just kept going, you know what I mean? I mean, so yeah, it, it, it became it, this cult item, and you can see it reflected today and stuff like Barry and stuff, and, and good stuff that keeps, my brother had always been, our brother had always been obsessed with Hitman. He loved Hitman in, in movies, and he always argued there had never been a great Hitman movie. You know, the, you see Hitman, he's a, he's a, the TV episode of the week, he's going to kill the girl, and he's always in the overcoat and the, and the black gloves, and they would hurl coffee in his face or something. No, and he always bothered him. He goes, no professional hitman would, you know, would make that mistake, you know. He was, my brother, uh, it drove him crazy, the Tom Hanks movie where he Tom plays Cruise. a hitman. Tom Cruise. No, Tom Hanks. What was the Tom Hanks movie where he played a hitman? Man, I'm wrong, one red shoe. No. Tom, Tom Hanks plays a hitman with Paul Newman. I oh, uh, Michael, uh, pray for Michael, uh, what's his name? No, that's the, not the one. Um, it's with the British guy playing. With the bad if he's, uh, anyway, <laughs> he did a, there was a hitman movie where Tom Hanks played the hitman with Paul Newman. I'll come to me, he's based on a graphic novel. Okay. Road to Perdition. Oh, okay. Right. And it would drive my brother crazy because he said all through the movie, uh, he's going into, co Tom Hanks the hitman going into coffee shops. And he would sit with his back to the door. Oh, right. <laughs> and it would drive him nuts because uh, every Hitman movie, and he loved collateral until the last 10 minutes when he doesn't care his face is on camera. You know what I mean? I mean, the Hitman loses all sense of Hitman ability by running around screaming with a gun in his yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, a, he was always a Hitman buff. So he was happy with how it came through, the structure and all that, the Michigan references. Uh, uh, they were all... And, you know, and, um, Debbie was based on a real girl that obviously he dated. Paul was based on one of his best friends from high school. I mean, it was, it was weird to see everything make it in. You know, all the elements made it in. He was, and it was weird because um, they shot it about 15 minutes from our house. They shot it in Monrovia. And I remember we went down and uh, Tom took a picture with the street sign. Welcome to Gross Point, you know. Yeah. Because they would not allow them to shoot. They were going to do exteriors at the real high school in Michigan. But because there was drinking in, this, in the and script drugs. in the film and drugs, they weren't allowed to shoot at the, uh, the, the Gross Point High School. And the murder, of course. Murder was another thing they were bothered by. Okay, yeah, that, that all makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but he'd love, he'd love, he, he, was, uh, he was bittersweet about it. He liked it, you know. Was he a Cusack fan? Did he think he was a good, like, fit? He did, thought he did a good job, yeah. I, I think he was hoping. <laughs> he thought Trooper Sutherland would have been perfect. <laughs> I got you, that's who So, answer. you know, he goes, uh, but, but he, was, he, was, he was fine with Kuzak's performance. He thought, the, the movie, you know, Armitage is directing. Armitage, uh, it was shot by Jamie Anderson, who shot Piranha and a bunch of their stuff. He was really happy because uh, Anderson gave the whole movie that kind of 80s, 3 o'clock in the morning look to it. I think he was really happy with that, you know? Yeah, right, right, I can see that. And he loved Alan Arkin. He thought Alan Arkin did, as the psychiatrist, 
we were scared about the psychiatrist because uh, um, at one point when, when Kuzak and the guys came on, they turned the psychiatrist into a country western guy. And they turned, and you know what I mean, and in the script, he's, you know, the, the psychiatrist is, is the classic joke, the hitman and the psychiatrist. And the hitman, the, the psychiatrist, Arkin went back to the classic, tell me about your mother, a psychiatrist. You know, right, right, right. You know, too precious otherwise. Yeah, it would have been too precious because they were, originally they were going to turn him into an Iron John quoting uh, 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 country and western psychiatrist, which I don't think had fit the classic psychiatric image. You know, the button-down professor kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right, right. Um, well, I, Pat, what this total total shift, terrible transition on my part, but. Um, just curious, what projects are you now working on, or that you can talk about? Um, you know, I I have an option script that is something that I originated with Tom, that's now going the low budget route. It'd been at, at uh, it'd been at Warner Brothers uh, Home Entertainment for a while. Now it's so now you know what I mean when they're talking about it, it's like a, 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 I can't see the title yet, but. It went from it would have had a certain budget. Now I'm rerunning it for a certain budget, which is painful. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm working on two uh, um, two nonfiction books. Uh, on one is on uh, a television project from the 1990s. Um, the the another one is an option script of mine that came back. I'm adapting it to another medium. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be coy. I'm just I'm getting ready to pitch it this summer at Comic Con. Where I'm, in, I'm taking a, a, a script that's been optioned like three times, and now it's being turned into a pitch for a comic book, you know. And uh, um, right now, it's it's feeling coming along pretty well, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, it, breaking it down to another meeting, it feels pretty good on that. Uh, I'm up for a couple of projects. Uh, just went out for a commercial yesterday, so and then Donald and I auditioned for a, uh, a project on Friday. So right now it's just basically, um, you know, keeping on. You know, there's, there's. I, I hate to sound coy, but I, I also know one of those deep bags who says something that doesn't. Yeah, no, no, I completely get that. And you'll see people all the time on nonsense Facebook. Oh, I'm doing this, and then you know, what happened to that? Yeah, <laughs> right. So you know what I mean. I mean, so those are coming. Uh, I did the creature thing for the Burmans. I'm up for a couple more creature gigs. I have two creature features, the Bigfoot thing and, and the Danny Trio thing that are so, supposed to be out this year, so waiting for them to happen. I do a radio show from uh, Wednesday to Friday called the Jeff and Janky Show on Chaotic Radio, this punk station in Montclair. You have to be on it, Pete. All right. By the way, yeah, since I came out to you, you've got to come out. I'll buy you breakfast in uh, Montclair, California. All right, yeah. You can see how the other half lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, count me in. Yeah, so I've, I've been working on that. Tiffany Shepis was a guest, and, and Jim Ojala, you know, um, we've had Carl Gottlieb on the show. It's great. I, you're, we're doing what you're doing now. You're going to call everyone. You're going to start out with all your friends who you think have good stories. Then you're going to literally start scrambling. You're going to find anybody who can uh, give you two compelling hours in the morning. Right, right. And your stories are cool. Your stories are good. I want to hear the Green Day story. Yeah, so. The Green Day story, there's not that much to it. It was just kind of funny. It was right when I first moved to Los Angeles. I figured 
I'm just curious, so I went on Craigslist, and let me see what's <laughs> Well, I was like... Is Don't eat a kidney or do a Green Day video. <laughs> I, w- I was morbidly curious. They, um, they didn't use the term Green Day in the Craigslist. Day no, day. no, they yeah. didn't. They didn't. What, what I, World it, famous rock bands. That was, that was the, the surprise, is I just typed in Craigslist. I was like, is I'm like, what skills do I have? I'm just kind of like a wild card in that regard. Mm-hmm. I Pat, like myself, did substitute teaching, so... That's Easiest gig in the world. It's my favorite. You go in on a Friday something right before any holiday, and you'll be eating like an Arab king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they take care of you sometimes. But you're like a roadie. I, I always saw it as a rodeo clown. You come in, you put in a performance, and then get the hell out. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I was an amateur magician, and so that came in handy when I was to <laughs> teach my stories about that. But... So anyway, when I'm out here and I'm on Craigslist and I'm just like, let me type in, because I, I used to play in punk bands. I'm just like, can I get paid for anything punk rock related? And so I searched for a job that way, or like a gig, and there was like, music video needs punks, ravers, all this. I was like, oh, I got this. So <laughs> this I, blows my mind, by the way. I mean, when you meet Pete, you know, look at his picture. He looks like the boy next door. And then he's got these big muscular tattooed uh, Henry sleeves. Yeah, yeah, he's got sleeves. You know, I mean, he should be in black flag with arms like this. <laughs> I'm not quite Rollins' stature, but yeah, I do. You know, what, but you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, it's a totally shocking look because you. Well, I'm you, sorry, you don't work for Hagen Dazs when you're in DC. No, no, I did not work for Hagen. You mean it's at Hagen Dazs though? You've been there. I uh, yeah, I mean Georgetown. I I don't know if it's still there. Maybe it is. I, w- I wasn't obsessed with it, but I yeah, I mean... That's, Discord house, you've been there? Yes, uh. I've been to the Discord house. Um, <laughs> but with this Green Day video, so I type in punk, and there, you know, there's an audition for this music video, and so I go, and I audition, and it, it was just paid pretty well. It was like two to $600 for a day or two. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then they're like, yeah, it's a Green Day video. So I was like, oh, okay, this will be interesting. So I go, and I do it, and I think I'm like one of the only punk kids. They didn't actually want punk kids. They wanted like... Uh, post-apocalyptic ravers. <laughs> but So you wore the Demolition Man outfits too. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't even... But the guys in Green Day could tell I was like a punk kid. And so Mike Dirt talked to me, and this is kind of funny. He's just like looking at me, and I have a bunch of tattoos, and I have a Big Trouble in Little China tattoo. I don't know if I've showed you that. No, I didn't know. What's, your, what's your character? I'll, I'll, sh- I'll show you shortly. Um... <laughs> And he looks at it, it's, it's Kurt Russell, and he's like, oh. oh, nice, I like the Big Trouble in Little China tattoo. He's like, Patrick Swayze was great in that. I was like, no, dude, that was Kurt Russell. Not, I mean, <laughs> totally, like, wouldn't hear me correct him. So, like, all right, you go on and think that. <laughs> but um, the director at some point was like, who's willing to get fake blood dumped on their head? I was like, oh, of course, <laughs> I am. And so I was one of the volunteers who did that. I can see myself barely in like a split second. I'm sure you've been in stuff. You're like, where am I? I don't know. Who cares? Oh, you, you know, the, the California love. I mean, uh, you'll see me with two, Tupac wanted to race me while drunk on Cabossier. <laughs> so I haven't yet to find out which documentary it's in, but you know, kids had seen it and described it to me with me running all fours and Tupac running on two, but he was S faced by that point. He was, <laughs> he was so, he was so drunk. And I mean, uh, he, yeah, he's, so I, I did my four-legged run and almost stepped on a lit grill that somebody had taken <laughs> the legs off so they could cook on the desert floor. See, that's cool. insane. <laughs> You're running on all four legs against a drunk Tupac. Yeah, it was desert. very strange. <laughs> that's uh, I'm well, stealing this dog, by the way. It's my favorite. What's her name? Chip Chip. Hi, Chip Chip. She's a, a very sweet chihuahua. 
She goes, I've got a chihuahua at home, Gracie, but I've decided that I can't breed them since Chip Chip's a girl. Yeah, she, she's a girl. She's spayed, too. Oh, she, she, is she, is she, did you find her? Is she a shelter dog? Well, it's funny. My wife found her on a, like, uh, yeah, she's a shelter dog with a German Shepherd rescue. Wow. And she's like, let's get this dog. I'm like, no, I fucking hate chihuahuas. They're, yeah, they're I was like that until I owned one, you know? And then we met her, and she's, like, super sweet and totally changed my opinion on dogs. Mine, yeah. They're, they're the, the, I, again, our, our hillbilly neighbors in Michigan had two of them, and they were yap-yap dogs. Yeah. But when you get a chihuahua, I find out they react whether or not Mine never yap yaps. Yours never yap yaps. You know, and she's she's just so totally mellow. You know. Yeah, she's she's a sweet dog. She's not like an ankle biter. She she does bark occasionally, but it's not anything like I was was used to or expecting. Well, I mean, I, again, I, I would never mine was like a chewini. You know what I mean? Uh, that was abandoned in a field with another dog, and so the other dog had a home, and then they they uh, gave me this one, and I love her. She sits in my lap whenever. Right? Does she sit in your lap when you're working? When you're yeah, working? she's yeah. she's very affectionate. She's but it's really, well, they're they're great lap dogs. They're good, well-behaved dogs. Now, tell me about you. When you lived in D.C., how many times did you do the Exorcist stairs? So, I'm actually from Alexandria, Virginia, but mm-hmm. it's a suburb of it, and I went on to live in Arlington. But that's a lot where the of tavern is now. Yeah, a lot of my social life was in D.C., and so the Exorcist stairs are in Georgetown, and being like a horror obsessive teenager and all that like i people would come and be like oh i want to see the washington Monument. i want to see the white house I'm like no 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 you want to see the exorcist <laughs> right effing now <laughs> yeah there, there was a like a, a seven inch punk compilation that was supposed to come out that never did where we got everyone from all these bands to take pictures on the exorcist wow. um, but it was hard to do because it's just a very like you know steep what is it narrow is it steep I, you know yeah it's it's steep and narrow I mean, running up those things would be a pain in the eye. It would be a good workout. Some people do that. I made my sister go there when she was in D.C. I met her sister. Hey, hey, Diane, you got to go to the exorcist stairs. You know what I mean? She was there on business. It's like, oh. And she goes, I got the stairs from your little horror movie. <laughs> Wait, another thing that was filmed there, and me and my friends got on top of some hotel to watch them film uh, just like a sequence, I think, with Elizabeth Shue exiting a building was Hollow Man was filmed in D.C. That's right. <laughs> I got my, my favorite Elizabeth Shoe story actually is um, I sat next to her. Uh, um, I, I interviewed her for Piranha 3DD. Okay. And she, in the, I was talking, it was, you know, when you do a junket in Comic Con, I wound up interviewing her and JJ Abrams and a couple other people, and they were going to show us some clips from Piranha 3DD. So I had. Elizabeth Shue on one side of me, and on the other side, uh, um, on the other side is my our brother Stephen and J.J. Abrams. And J.J. Abrams came in because he wanted to see what type of uh, 3D from around the 3D, or from around the 3D, because he was thinking about making uh, one of the Mission Impossible's in 3D from the get-go. And they'd already shown the the clips, you know, because they wanted to show the press and stuff. And I remember Abrams turns to the producer, the former head of Warner Brothers, and said, run it again. And the guy goes, run it again. JJ wants to see it. And they ran it again. And she jumped at something in Prana 3D, one of the fish coming up. It was like a sizzle reel of the, the worst attacks in the movie, the bloodiest. Right. And Elizabeth shoot through her head, and I suddenly had her hair in my mouth. 
It was the most exciting moment of my life, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> it tasted like angel hair pasta. It tasted like angel hair pasta. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I want to thank you guys for for coming out. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, you know, I, I think people really appreciate your stories, Pat. Pete, thank you for having us. Yeah, we'll, we'll see you on Thursday for our trip. What do you have? Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, uh, Donald runs my Instagram and Twitter page. What are they, Donald? Uh, Janky two zero nine nine. Can you uh, repeat that in case he? Oh yeah, at Janky twenty ninety nine. At at for the uh, uh, you can reach me at at Janky. J A N K I E 2099. 2099. On Instagram, on Twitter, we'll follow you back. On Instagram and Twitter, I'll follow you back. And uh, you can see. Uh, um, Chaotic Radio. Chaotic Radio, if you want to watch Jeff and Janky, the Chaotic Radio page on YouTube. And uh, Janky, uh, uh, and you can follow my books if you like that sort of thing. Justin thought it was safe, but Josh Companion has its own page. You would like me when I'm angry. An incredible, an incredible health companion and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Just to mix things up with TV companions. Thank oh, you. There you go. All right, yeah. Pete, thank you, guys. Chip, chip, thank you for having us.